Everybody, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. And today it's going to be trying to be your international movement building show because the subject of the meeting is uh, how do we stop a new Cold War on China that the Biden administration is already carrying out? Now, it's going to be interesting because I'm in the Strategy and Soul studio, uh, organized by Channing Martinez, with Akuna Uka, who, among other things, is a teacher at New Roads School and is also uh, a very active volunteer organizer with the Strategy Center. Hi, Akuna. Hi, Eric. And then I'm with Channing Martinez, the director of organizing and the co-host and the technician to even make us have the possibility of having this show how are you doing, Channing? I am great, and I'm excited that I was able to figure out a makeshift studio. Yeah, this is... We have a soul movement center. Yeah, this is pretty good. We're sitting at this wonderful table, the three of us. We're all a little nervous because this is an effort to bring you in on organizing. Now, you know Voices from the Front Lines is different from a lot of radio shows. Uh, they'll have ten people on that say what's wrong with the United States, and why the war in China is wrong, but we're trying to figure out what to do about it. That's what everything about the show is. It's very hard. I mean, imagine trying to get the police out of the schools, which is uh, monumental, and now we're trying to stop a U.S. war against the People's Republic of China. So the Strategy Center generates forms. You know, every time we want to do something, we come up with some new thing, a bus riders union, uh, outside of the uh, outside of the strategy center, the Channing Martinez for City Council campaign, inside the strategy center, taking action clubs, and we formed a new group that Akuna is going to tell us all about because that group that that I'm going to read you about what we're trying to do is our latest incarnation. So our campaign is called the South Central Third World Solidarity Campaign. I'm super excited about it. So we start off with South Central because that is literally where we are, where we're recording from. And we say third world in solidarity with the third world because many of us in South Central are of the third world. My family, half of my family is from Nigeria, and so I definitely identify as being of the third world, uh, and I'm also a South Central resident. And so we have our South Central Third World Solidarity Campaign, and we call it a campaign because we are struggling towards something, we're moving towards something, and we're excited to bring you all in on what that is and for you to join us. 
yeah, now the problem is what is it and what are we going to do? So what I do is I write strategy papers. I sit down and try to say, you know, I'm a very experienced organizer and I've done anti-war work. Uh, I was there when we ended the war in Vietnam. You know, I mean, I mean, I became aware of the war in Vietnam really only in about February of 1965. I knew about it, but there was a somebody was telling me that there was going to be this big march on Washington on April, organized by this group called Students for Democratic Society. I was uh, a field secretary with the Congress of Racial Equality. I didn't even know what SDS was. And, uh, and I went. And it was a life-changing experience. And the speeches were just so amazing. And Paul Potter said, we have to name the system that will kill children, that will, you know, drop napalm on people. We have to name the system. Interestingly, he didn't name it. Uh, his later statement was, I didn't just want to call it imperialism. I wanted other people to be able to use whatever name they wanted. But most of us started, yeah, but the name is imperialism. Uh, then Bob Moses spoke the late Robert Moses just died, one of the leaders in Mississippi. And he said, you know, black people have to make the connection between segregation in Mississippi and defoliation in Vietnam. And then I.F. Stone, who is a very famous uh, kind of muckraker journalism, he said, I wrote a book called The Hidden History of the Korean War, and they lied about the Korean War, and they're lying now. So we have to have our own independent uh, media and do not believe the New York Times. They are run by the State Department. Do not believe in the Wall Street Journal. Do not believe in the Washington Post. This is CIA Pentagon Papers. And then Staunton Lenz, who was a pacifist, talked about this guy, Norman Morrison, who had burned himself to death, uh, self-immolated in protest against the war in Vietnam. And he said, obviously, the question is, like the civil rights movement, we have to make sacrifices. And you have to decide what you want to do to end this war. So I will not take you through that except to say it was 10 years. Uh, it took 10 years for the Vietnamese people to defeat the United States in 1975. But that war was going on since 1865 when the French occupied Vietnam. So the first thing you got to do in these work is just have a long timeline and to realize that the United States is going to provoke a war in China. We're not going to be able to stop them. But we're going to start building a movement against it and as it, the American people, as they call themselves, start to realize that, wait a minute, China has nuclear weapons. China's not going to roll over. China is on the ascendancy, which is why the United States is trying to suppress it. Maybe some people are going to say, well, maybe it's not the greatest thing to get into a war with China, with China being willing to fight back. So we have long-term reasons to believe that we could play a role. But the first thing we're trying to do is just get in the game. 
So especially Akuna and I have been reading, we read this, I, I urge everyone to read The New Cold War in China by John Delamy Foster, which is like my Bible. I've read it about five times. I just got another great article that um, Manuel Criollo sent me by a man named, or a person named K.J. No of the Chow Collective, Q-I-A-O. I just subscribed to them. It's really terrific. Oh, and I also got it from Michael Novick, who sent it to me. I'll just read from here. This is in the Chow Collective. The U.S. has actually surrounded China with 400 military bases, bristling with strategic and tactical weaponry. It's also war-gamed out China's key vulnerability, the choke point of the South China Sea. War in the South China Sea would disrupt 5.3 trillion of China's external trade and 77% of China's oil imports. In this scenario, the U.S. does not have to win a shooting war with China in the South China Sea. The war just has to happen, and disruption to trade could crash China's economy. The map shows the shipping lanes that would be disrupted. China's first response to the U.S. pivot and encirclement, especially in the South China Sea, its key choke point, was to build defensive military facilities along some of the islands to defer U.S. incursion and to raise the cost of interference. Its other, much more ambitious response was the Belt and Road Initiative, which constitutes a long overland escape from the encirclement, <laughs> similar to its long march during the encirclement by the, the fascist KMT. The Belt and Road Initiative travels through Southeast Asia, then overland through Central Asia to the Mediterranean, and then Europe and Africa in particular. I know, Akuni, you're just starting as I am, but what do you understand about the Belt and Road Initiative? And I'll tell you a little too, but I'm proceeding from a very low level of knowledge. Yes, so from what I've been reading so far with you, I understand that the Belt and Road Initiative is an infrastructure project that China is engaged with, with dozens of countries, uh, not only in Asia and in Europe, but through Africa as well. And so the goal of the Belt and Road Initiative is to connect all of these countries through these infrastructure projects to allow for trade. Yeah, and what, does, what do you think its political objectives are? Well, the political objective is certainly that a lot of the countries that are gaining infrastructure through this project are countries that haven't been able uh, to get loans from other places that have been fair. And so really it's engaging so that there is a geopolitical alliance. Exactly. Good afternoon, this is Channing Martinez, co-host of Voices from the Frontlines, your movement-building show. Uh, we're in this conversation about Biden's war on China and the U.S. war on China. We're in the KPFK fund drive, and the viability of KPFK is so important to Voices from the Frontlines and to the Strategy Center and to all of us. This may not be the only show you'll hear about the U.S. war against China, but this is the only show that you will hear about and organizers discussing on how to build a movement against the war. We think that this can be the start of a scary World War III 
And even as we just had Trump, we see that Biden's just as bad as Trump in many ways. You're only going to hear that content, though, here on KPFK and from that perspective on KPFK, which makes it so important. Uh, call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK today to support this radio. Help us build this movement. So, well, what's basically happening, and let me just amplify, you know, I know only a little more. Really, and I want to study, I mean, like, studying the Belt and Road Initiative, going as we are next, Maybe we'll dig in and find a good article on it, okay? Uh, and if people know good articles, I know our friends from China's Not the Enemy, uh, just send it to eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. And Akuna, what's the email you want people to send you anything? A-K-U-N-N-A period U-K-A at gmail.com. That's akuna.uka at gmail.com. So here's the thing. China is, as you said, the word geopolitical. See, historically, imperialism understood how to sort of take over the world. So World War I and World War II were all about fighting among England, France, Germany, Hungary, Austria, about taking over the world. And each one wanted more colonies because the colonies were the source of the real wealth. So the world... The wars were all about dividing up the world. China's not trying to divide up the world. China's trying to unify the world. So China, which is amazing. I mean, China was a, an impoverished country in 1949. It's not even 100 years old yet in terms of its revolution. But China's economy is doing much better than the United States. Are you listening out there? Like, uh, a lot of people are talking about 5G coming you know, the, to the Apple phones and everything. But as uh, um, Jeffrey Sachs, who said, China's at 7G. China has technology now more advanced than the United States. The United States knows that. And so it feels like it has to defeat China militarily to stop its economic progress. So China is being very aggressive, and China's allying with Russia, because they both know that NATO and the United States are trying to kill them. For instance, the United States has totally abandoned Africa, totally abandoned it, uh, after stealing all the slaves and killing all the people. And Africa's in very bad shape as, as a whole. China went into that vacuum with money, billions and billions of dollars. I know, in fact, uh, this very exciting construction project going on in Kenya and, and Nigeria, I believe. But we'll have to get uh, Ayuko Babu back on the, on the uh, show because he did some really good stuff about the Belt and Road. Now, they've been saying things like, well, China goes to Africa and they only have Chinese workers and they charge them a lot of um, interest and then they build the stuff, but they make a lot of money and they leave the economy sort of imperialized. That's a lie. It's a really lie. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of skilled Chinese workers there, but they are training Nigerian workers. They are training Kenyan workers, including in the skills. Secondly, as you were saying, uh, go back to what you were saying about how China doesn't ask for anything in return. It doesn't want a military base. It doesn't want to, you know, it just wants you, 
yeah, it wants you to be an ally against the United States, which is going to be hard. But I also heard, and I will research this more, that China is not enforcing its loans very strictly, whereas the International Monetary Fund, if you owe them money and you don't pay back, they tell you got to cut out your social programs to pay them back. So China is being much more uh, uh, flexible. Now, here's a question. Western Europe is in with U.S. imperialism. Western Europe is completely imperialist. But it seems like China is also making headroads in Europe. What did you learn about that? Because you were right reading me some stuff in one of the notes you sent me a corner. Yes, I thought that was interesting, and that was something that actually surprised me because when I thought of the Belt and Road Initiative, I really thought about Asia and Africa, and I didn't think at all about Western and uh, Southern Europe and, and part of Eastern Europe as well. And so because of difficulties and being a part of the EU, we know that there are European countries that are struggling economically. And so some of those countries have actually been able to work with China in order to get loans uh, at rates that are feasible for them so that they can actually begin to rebuild their own economies. That's interesting. And uh, the other thing, of course, is everybody... China has one thing that everybody wants, which is the largest market in the world. So China has almost 1.5 billion, 1.4 billion people. Uh, China has moved more than 200 million people out of poverty in 20 years. The United States has put 20 million people into poverty in the last 20 years. So the Chinese people have money. And a lot of them are now making $20,000 a year, which is amazing for a poor country. And the Chinese people do like to consume stuff. They're proud. They're, uh, you know, they've been downtrodden and, and treated badly. And now they want to buy good stuff. So they buy Apple Watches and they buy Starbucks coffee and they buy uh, Yum Brands stuff. And uh, so when Biden is saying he goes, wants to go to war with China... Apple's going, nah, I'm not sure. I think this is a great idea because, you know, we're building a lot of our uh, iPhones over in China. Okay. So now I'm going to read you some stuff from the organizing plan that, that I sent a memo because now we're going to come up with what we should do. Because the first thing we're going to do is study. The second thing we're going to do is study. And the third thing we're going to do is study. Because, uh, just one more story, you know, when, when Tom Hayden, I was in Newark, and I was very jealous because Tom was doing all the speaking in front of these groups, and uh, and he said, well, why don't you, I got a speaking agent, why don't you take it? But you got to debate the State Department. I said, oh, yeah, I got this. So I got up in front of these students, and the State Department, they knew their lies, and they knew their facts. And they would say, well, you know, that's not true. The South Vietnamese, in fact, are de being defeated. 37% of this province is now moved away from the Viet Cong. And, in fact, there's 37% of the Buddhists are supporting us. And I would go, you're a war criminal. You're a murderer. And the people in the audience are going, we're on your side, but that ain't cutting it. You know, <laughs> you got no facts, dude. I was so humiliated. 
that I said, I will never do this again until I read and read. So I went back and read uh, Bernard Falls, The Two Vietnams, which was a 600, one of my favorite 600-page books. I started reading I.F. Stone's Weekly. And I said to Tom and others, where do you read the State Department stuff and how do you learn to rebut it, which is what you're doing with the MTA chatting. After a while, you become comfortable with it. You know, so we are reading to, to dramatically up our game, right? And I'm a little overwhelmed. But I'm going to still read you the plan, because we have a plan. In the first 100 days, the Biden administration wasted no time in setting up U.S. military pressure on China. From January to April, this is probably from the article, John Bellamy, uh, from January to April 2021, U.S. military activity along China's borders increased sharply with incursions of U.S. military ships in Chinese-claimed territorial waters, rising by 20%. U.S. military aircraft incursions in Chinese airspace, growing by 40%. In March, Germany deployed a warship in the South China Sea aimed at China, with Washington welcoming Germany's support for rules-based international order, coming back to that, Acuna, in the Indo-Pacific. In April, the United States sent an additional carrier strike group to bolster its forces in the South China Sea. Meanwhile, Britain, the arch-imperialist, is sending its Queen Elizabeth II carrier strike group into the South China Sea in a tilt into the Indo-Pacific. The United States currently has 400 military bases, and some 375,000 command personnel, military and civilian in the Indo-Pacific encircling China, including more than 80,000 troops stationed in Japan and South Korea, which is why they want Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel is as close to a fascist as you'll ever meet, a dictator of the highest order. When Obama came in, Obama wanted to be the sweet face and he hired Rahm Emanuel to kick everybody's butt to do what he said. He's a ruthless, miserable racist, and now he's being sent to Japan to help lead the war against China. And if Eric Garcetti is sent to India, let's be clear, he's sent there to initiate a war against China. That's where they're going. So we started saying, so what are we going to do, right? So the first thing is some optimism. There are three reasons the People's Republic of China has the capacity to reverse and even solve these problems. Uh, first, the Communist Party of China has control of state power. They can outlaw certain practices, encourage others, tax certain sectors, move funds from one area of the country to the other to address specific inequalities. It can implement and has very strict environmental regulations that can invest heavily in less polluting or even environmentally advanced policies. The United States can't because it's a free market system. The corporations say, hell no, I'm not going to do it. And that's why there's no environmental progress. When I listen to the radio shows, the, the business shows, they say, well, of course China can do that. It has one of those dictatorial governments. And that's why they can reduce their pollution. And other people even on the show are saying, so what's wrong with that exactly? You know, that... Why aren't we doing that? Second, the communist China, power, China has great power, 
a large party membership, and great popularity among the people. Today, as it moves against Jack Ma of Alibaba, the head of Alibaba just told the Communist Party to go to hell, and the Communist Party said, no, 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 you're under house arrest, and you are not able to go out in public, and we're going to tax Alibaba more, and we're going to make a, an example out of you. And a lot of, again, capitalists have said, good for them. You know, I mean, it's funny because they don't want to say anything positive about China, but they're saying, yeah, I mean, this guy insulted his own government, and, and the Chinese government created all that wealth for Alibaba, I mean, supported Alibaba. So the Chinese people are very grateful to what the party and the socialist capitalist system has brought them, including getting 400,000 people out of extreme poverty in a generation. But let's be clear. The party also knows the massive focus on wealth creation has created many distortions, people cheating, hoarding, selling for too much profit. So now the party has to move against some of the very forces they created to create the wealth so that the wealth can now be invested better, distributed better, and move to environmental paradigm while sometimes protecting itself from a crazy nuclear white U.S. imperialism, who will not let Eric Garner, George Floyd, or the Chinese people breathe. That's what makes it a revolution. Okay? So now we're going into what are we going to do? So a thing I want to explain to you about a lot of the people in the peace movement, because Akuna and I had this conversation, is, you know, there's, uh, when Joe Biden says the American people, the American people... Even the peace movement says, well, we have to get the American people against the war. What American people? I'm going to read you something about the American people. Uh, 63% of all white people voted for Trump. 50% of the people are sympathetic to the anti-vaxxers. 90% of all white people are racists. That's my study. Uh, even when they vote Democrat. Black GIs are overrepresented in the U.S. Army and very loyal to it. Since the end of the draft in 1973, in the midst of massive anti-war protests, the U.S. has moved to an all-voluntary army. Today, while black people are 14% of the U.S. population, they're 22% of enlisted officers, 16% of warrant officers, and 11% of officers on active duty in July. Note that Chanting in every other negative category in L.A., black people are overrepresented. In anything good, they're never represented. But the army has figured out it wants an integrated army. The army is one of the best places that black people are treated in America, even though they're being asked to do bad things. Very smart. And it means our work is going to be cut out for us because there's a lot of black families very loyal to the army because my son was treated well there and my son was promoted. Doesn't say there's not racism, but we need to know that. They, uh, the army even comes out to defend affirmative action in front of the Supreme Court because they believe in a fully integrated imperialism and they think the racism is not good if you're going to go into the third world with an all-white army like they didn't, you know, it ain't going to happen. So we just need to know that the system is, is moving. Uh, 
There are almost 900,000 police in the U.S. County police families, I'm figuring 10 in a police family, you know, who are like it or around it. That's 9 million people just in the police. They're a strong voting block for racism and war. Now, there's 1 million soldiers in the U.S. Army, and again, with military families, figure 7 to 10 million people who believe the Army is there to protect and serve. So the more they create a police state, the more votes they're getting for the police state. Because people say, I like the police state. They came into my community and built rockets. Yeah, but what are those rockets that are going to go against China? Well, the Chinese must be doing something wrong because my son's got a good job making those rockets. A couple of these. There's more than 800,000 people work in the defense industry, and they love the B-1 bomber, nerve gas, and any other weapon of war they love and defend. How can they justify it? Well, let's say the Communist Party and the terrorists, the Iraqis, are surrounding us. Did you see what happened on September 11th? We were not prepared. We'll never let that happen again. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So the native white suburban peace movement does not want to take a look at the American people after more than 500 years of indigenous genocide, the transatlantic slave trade for 100 plus years, dropping the atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and murdering 4 million Vietnamese men and women. And the U.S. people have never suffered real casualties in a war, have never a war fought on their territory. In World War II, as an example, the U.S. got in very late to fight the Nazis because they didn't want to. The U.S. had 291,000 casualties in the war. The Soviet Union had 27 million deaths from military and civilians. The U.S. repaid them by allying with the Nazis and starting a Cold War against the Soviets. So we have to agree with the view that we are not just a minority, but a minority in a racist, warmongering, fascist state. And people are not confused. They understand the U.S. and the standard of living they have is by murdering people all over the world. And that Christian fundamentalism believes that God is on their side, and the murdering of heathens and infidels is their moral duty. I do believe a movement to defend China's right of self-determination is urgently needed and possible, but it must begin by, as Mao Zedong said, seek truth from facts. And there's some pretty terrifying facts on the ground. Now, okay, organizers, that's what you're up against. Where's the hope? I think there's some hope around this table. We're reading, we're learning, we're trying to uh, work with other organizations to learn what they learn, and we're going to figure out what a plan is. So for me, that's the hope, is that there's a group that's committed to finding the hope. Well, that always, that's really important. It, it often starts with three and four very dedicated people, because you're spending several days a week now as I am. But last night you had another thought you would tell me about who you would bet on. Yes. So if I, I if I had to bet on, I would put a hundred dollars on the black GIs, please, Alex. Certainly, uh, I think in order to, and I I actually have a 
someone in my immediate family who did serve in Afghanistan. And so I am one of those black families where someone was able to gain employment uh, by being in the armed forces. And one thing that I, I've been thinking about and that we reflected on together, uh, Eric, recently, is that in order to be black and in, in the armed forces, there's a sort of mental gymnastics that you have to do because on one hand, you are... Uh, you are of the third world, right? And you have that experience in this country, and yet you are also employed by the government to uh, put undue harm on other other third world individuals outside of this country. And so in order to make that make sense for you, there does have to be uh, some gymnastics at play that you're you're working with and figuring out and negotiating. And so I think that if we're hoping to organize certain groups, I think speaking to the black GIs, because of their experience, they are more likely to understand and be sympathetic to uh, this idea that we're working towards. Yeah, we both uh, took your $100 bet, uh, and that's great. Tell me further, how would you talk to, because um, you know, there's also this cognitive dissonance, right, as you said, mental gymnastics, Talk to this hypothetical member of your family, or how would you talk to a black GI about this? You know, that's an interesting question. I think one of the things that I would start out with is asking them what they've heard about China recently and what their feelings are about China. And I think that would be an interesting starting point because maybe what they've heard are just headlines or snippets in the media. Maybe they have their own opinions. And then I would want to move to and share what I've been reading and what I've been learning uh, and invite them into a conversation about the idea that China, regardless of different issues within that country, and we all know that every country has them, that it does have the right to sovereignty. And what is the U.S. doing to attack that sovereignty and what are those who are part of the armed forces then how are they lending themselves to that effort yeah and i think one of the things that i do with people is i try to find some contradiction in their thinking that would make them sympathetic to our point of view right so in this hypothetical person you know i would say well let let me take a step back um how do you feel about George Floyd? How do you feel about Black Lives Matter? How do you feel about our efforts to get the police out of school? Did you know that the OASPD just shot a girl in the head and killed her? And I think that person might say, that's outrageous, and this country is still racist. And then we would say, yeah, and all this pretend concern about China's human rights when there's a million black people in prison, do you understand the United States is setting you up for a war? Again, they don't have a million black people in prison in China. Did you know that during the anti-war movement that Mao sent uh, letters of support to the Afro-American people? Did you know that? And that, uh, did you know that when Fidel Castro came to Harlem and because they wouldn't give him a hotel downtown, that Malcolm X welcomed him at the Teresa Hotel? Did you know that 250,000 black people were outside saying Viva Fidel Castro? Because they knew that the Cubans were third world people. And they were proud that when they weren't allowed to 
uh, go to downtown stupid Manhattan, they stayed in their war khakis and marched into Harlem like heroes. So you have facts. You know, you have facts that you think the other person would feel good about. Think, yeah, I never thought about that. Then you have to still go back to the hard part, right? And say, so here's the thing. Um, you know, during the war in Vietnam, a lot of GIs and vets started saying, yeah, I was over there, but I don't want to do it anymore. You know, I don't want to go to China. I will not fight in China. Uh, you know that's eventually what it's going to take, right, is standing up and saying, and it would mean a lot because you could even, frankly, say that certain things you did in Afghanistan are not things in retrospect that you feel great about. And you just leave it. You're not trying to get her in one or her in one. The, I want, you know, the good organizer, they'll say, I like Akuna, you know, she was really interested in me and uh, she had some good points and she showed me this pamphlet or she gave me, it's always, and she had something for me to read, damn it, and I I read it and, you know, she'll be back and she's my relative. She's not trying to make me look bad. She really cares. I didn't know she cared so much about this. The other thing is that everything we do starts black and Latinx because there's a lot of anti-war forces in the black community. You know, Black Lives Matter is anti-imperialist and, you know, there's people working on Palestine. Uh, again, Ayuko Babu from the Pan-African Film Festival, he came in to talk about the films. The next thing he was doing was just talking about how great China is for black people and how great China is from Africa and how if it wasn't for China, Africa would be, you know, just facing everything. So you start looking around at who are your allies, right? And we want white middle-class allies, but that's not going to... Um, the system's not worried about them. They're in safe democratic seats. They don't fight very hard. They march around. I mean, I'm trying to be listening to our listeners. They often have rallies at the federal building. Why are you on Wilshire at the federal building? It's cuckoo. Well, it's because we're against the federal government. Yeah, but you're... Are you organized? Cars are going by, and you, go, you want people to honk. No, we're going to have demonstrations at Albertsons in South Central, where people are. So the other thing is this concept of institutional organizing. You remember when I was talking about that? About building groups within every workplace? Uh, why don't you talk about that a little bit, Akuna? Yeah, so I, I remember when you introduced me to that concept, you were explaining that instead of trying to organize individual people necessarily, like, okay, this friend over here or this person that I know and that neighbor, that instead you have the approach of what is a group that I can organize? So is that a potluck group? Is that my uh, people where I work? So thinking about organizing through institutions so that you then have okay, UCLA professors for the sovereignty of China and, uh, and things of that nature, and that it's more effective. It is, it, and it's the thing that scares the hell out of the system because, see, organizing uh, isolated individuals, the system doesn't care. But, like, as you said, let's take UCLA. It, they like UCLA. I mean, that's trying to build ruling-class kids, Right. So as you say, UCLA students and professors against the war, then as we would do, if we would go up and say, a decent professor, can we address the class? 
some would say no. Some would say yeah. The ones that said no, we would address them from the floor. And we weren't, contrary to what you're saying, shouting out the professor. We were good at it. We say, Professor so-and-so, I know you don't agree. We asked you in front of everybody, can we please have five minutes to talk about what we want? And he'll say, no, it's my class. Then we would say, it's not just your class. There's a war going on in Vietnam. You believe in free education and free expression of ideas. And we're from SDS. We ask you for five lousy minutes. What, do you support all the napalm? No, but this has no role in my classroom. Well, if you don't talk about it, you're for the napalm. And eventually, either students would say, well, let's go outside and talk about that, or people would say to the professor, what's your problem? So it wasn't what they stereotyped, that we would scream at the professor and not let him her talk. We were good. We were smart. Eventually the professor would say, all right, all right, you get five minutes. Well, once we got five minutes, uh, people saw it as a great victory. Then we had teachers on the campus, and we got the State Department to come, and everybody likes that. Well, okay, let's have a debate. That's, I like debates. Not my first story, <laughs> but we creamed them. We knew their stuff, and a lot of the students, when listening to the State Department, saying, well, China's against us. Why? Uh, because they seek unfair advantage. Well, how's that? Well, they stole our economic secrets. Well, that's funny. I mean, didn't you agree in return for Chinese labor? To, it's not a secret. You helped them learn how to build a computer. That, that was right in your contract. Well, yeah, but right, yeah, but nothing. So... We should have debates. Um, another thing is like in the 60s, we would have uh, social justice groups in the uh, churches, social justice groups in the school that would meet separately like a club. And then the club would say, we're going to call on our institution to do something. We'd like you to boycott something about China, you know, or we'd like you to have a teach-in. Teachings are great because it's hard for them to say no because you're allowing both, you know, and when you're new, once you know what you're talking about, it's hard for them to say, I will not allow a discussion. And after you win the discussion, then you can make more demands on the institution. So the main thing I'm saying, as you said, Akuna, is that first we are starting with ourselves. We're reading like fiends. In the fall, I think we're going to start going into some institutions when we know a little bit. We may do some teachings here for us, for organizers, and just say, hey, social justice organizers, again, we're not experts, but we've been doing some work, and here's four articles you should read, and who wants to come? And maybe we just can get some labor union and DSA people. and you know. So once you get started, it starts to feel optimistic. You know what's not funny? I mean, you start as depressing, and then you go, wait. Uh, why don't we do something? Any thoughts, Channing? I, I mean, I'm really impressed. I feel like I just learned a lot in the last you know, 20 or 30 minutes. Um, you know, coming from understanding what the U.S. is doing to China to you know, that involvement and how it relates to 
subset. I mean, I learned a lot. Gosh. Um, and you guys have been studying a lot. I'm looking forward to the teaching. Um, and yeah, I, the other thing is I do feel optimistic about getting black people to stand in solidarity with China. And you know, I don't fully know how to do it yet, but I always start with you know asking questions, as you guys said. Like just ask, because I think the thing I do understand from organizing is that black folks are deeply moral folks. That's right. And in their head, in order to do something, or I should say in our head, in order to do something, we have to justify it in our head. So the moment you start asking questions that raise the contradictions that the system clearly has in front of everyone's face, I think is when the conversation starts. And I think different folks respond differently, right? Some people are very defensive because it's the only thing they know. Like, wait a minute, you're telling me everything I know is based on imperialism and lies. Um, and I'm not okay with that. But some people are moving in that direction because something in their own moral being said, there's something not right about this, but I mean, I, I'm going to go with it anyways because it's all I know. Um, and so I think you know, there is a lot of potential there to move a lot of black people. I totally agree, and I mean, I, I do think, it's not to say everybody doesn't, but I think in the black and Jewish culture, the thing about doing the right thing is so, you know, you know you're not really there to get money. The people that get money, we don't respect that much. You know, there's some of us, I know, there's some people in the black community, some Jews who, you know, they're about making the money. But my mom always said, no, no, we're not those kind of Jews. We're the teachers, we're the doctors, we're the lawyers, we're the social workers, we're, the, we're helping the poor. We, we're not, we, we, after what they did to us, I, that's all we can do is make money? When that's all they let us do is make money back in the day. We, we couldn't own land. We couldn't do anything but use the Goyim's money, you know, the, the Christian's money. That's what they let us be. And then we got a reputation being money lenders, well, we were lending them money. So my family brought me up to say, you know, after what Hitler did to us, Jews have a moral responsibility to fight with the Negro in particular. And I think black people, since I've talked to black people for 55 years, uh, one thing they like, if I can say, is history. Like, like examples. So did you know Paul Robeson stood up against the House on American Activities Committee? You want to look at this book? You know, of course, Muhammad Ali, but did you know that he didn't just say, no, Viet Cong ever called me the N-word? Did you know he spoke on campuses in depth about colonialism? And let me get your speech by him. So you always have something to show him beyond your own opinion, right? Have you ever read Dr. King's speech beyond Vietnam? It's, no, I know he was against no. It's an amazing speech, and I happen to have a copy here for you. So you're absolutely right. We have a lot of hope for the black and the Latinx community because look what's being done to them by imperialism. So you have the conflict where, I mean, everybody in America knows that you can complain, but there's a pretty damn good standard of living for most people. And people coming from the third world are making enough to send a remittance back to the third world. 
But they also know it's not right. You know, they know they're not treated right. So you're working with people that are oppressed. That's what you got going for you. Whereas the white people, they may be morally good, and I'm not saying some of them will not be very important, but they're not going to have the force that the system's worried about. They're going to have to join this other movement. And I think if we can get black and Latinx young people and teachers and and teachers and teachers and six months and pamphlets and uh, once you get it's called a foothold. Once you're in the game, the system's worried. You could have two percent of the of the people agreeing with you, but Channing, they had so much respect for you when you ran. And they liked you, and they liked me, and they liked you. You know, they're not, you know, they'll say, all right, Eric, I don't agree, but yeah, I'll read your thing. I'll come to your bookstore. So once we start doing that, and once a couple of other prominent people join the South Central Third World uh, Solidarity Campaign, then we are something. And you heard it here first on Voices from the Frontlines, and that's what this show is about. Uh, so I'm sort of out of what I understand. Maybe we could do checkouts. Uh, or I could read one more thing, but um, let me read one more thing from something I wrote. This is important to me. I don't when I originally wrote it, okay? I think it's like 2010. But I, this is about when, when the United States was trying to keep China out of the World Trade Organization, and I said, throughout U.S. history, the vast majority of social movements have been objectively or consciously racist and pro-imperialist. Given the deep-seated racism, national chauvinism, and anti-communism of all sectors of U.S. society, and in particular, the chauvinism of most white U.S. progressives, even the most, these calling themselves radicals or even revolutionaries, unconditional support but China's permanent, normal trade status, an unconditional admission of China into the WTO are essential challenges to hysterical and hypocritical moralism of the AFL-CIO labor bureaucracy and many so-called human rights, labor, and environmental groups. So then I did a thing about how... Uh, the U.S. seeks unfair advantage in all its trade dealings and will try to impose the most onerous conditions of trade and investment on China. The U.S. objective is to import Chinese goods at the lowest possible prices and impose U.S. technology, investment, and exports on the Chinese people on terms most favorable to the U.S., as well as to use trade and investment as a Trojan horse to undermine China's sovereignty if possible. So the central word that I think I'm understanding about this, this campaign, what do you think the central word is, Akona? Right now, sovereignty is jumping out at me. Me too. You said it originally. Just take a little minute. Why, why is that so important? Well, I think that there's 
something interesting at play with the U.S. government where we obviously uh, very much value our sovereignty uh, and we claim that we want to be uh, a shining light of democracy around the world, which would imply that we value other nations' sovereignty. But it seems to be a sovereignty with an asterisk that you we welcome the sovereignty of nations as long as they agree to be led by the U.S. government, which obviously we know is not actually sovereignty. Yeah. And I think people in Belize and I think people in uh, Ghana and Nigeria and even people that are pro-capitalist and pro-U.S. are going to believe, you're right, it's our country. And we don't want the United States interfering in the internal affairs of our country. I think that's going to take a, what do you call it, a, I think it's going to touch a deep chord in black and Latino families, Latinx families, is do you really believe the United States can put an asterisk, we'll put that in our thing, next to your sovereignty, which means that it's sort of like self-attestation, you know, for the bus pass. Uh, you, you don't have a right to a bus pass. We, we got to tell you if you have a right. So I'm finished. I'm checking out meaning that's how we say goodbye in a meeting. I think what's interesting to me is you were in a meeting. We were just talking out loud. We're trying. You're actually in the meeting of an organizing committee that you are overhearing. And the other two voices, of course, were Channing Martinez, who's the lead organizer of the center, will be part of this, and Akuna Uka, who's playing a very important role with me as the two driving people trying to figure this thing out. So, Kuna and Channing, what are your last thoughts out the door? That uh, anyone who is listening, if you have information that you want to share, if you're excited by what we're working on and what we're thinking about, email us, join us. And the emails are? Emails are, Eric is Eric at... Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. Awesome. Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. And I'm Akuna, A-K-U-N-N-A dot U-K-A at gmail.com. But you also have one of the coolest names, so you have an advantage. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. <laughs> we'll see if we get any emails with good info because of that. <laughs> and Channing, what about you? What are you thinking? Yeah, I think this is a really exciting campaign. And, you know... I think people are in this moment of like sort of upsurge. You know, you saw the death of George Floyd. All the movements right now are trying to figure out how to connect the black movement to international movements. And there is a subset talking about China, and I think it is up to us and up to groups in South Central to really bring that conversation into the hood. Um, because, you know, I think the United States is counting on us not wanting to talk about it, counting on us not wanting to uh, take sides. Um, and it's until we take a side that then they become worried. So uh, email us, uh, call us, tweet us, Instagram us, whatever you want to do, and uh, check us out. And I end with two things again. I urge you to check out and subscribe 
to monthly review that's just an amazing job. Go see the new Cold War in China by John Bellamy Foster. And check out the Zhao Collective, Q-U-I-O, Zhao Collective online, and look at the article by K.J. No. This is a very impressive group of Chinese, uh, U.S. Chinese Americans with great politics. So I'm so thrilled that both Michael Novick and I think Manuel Criollo turned me on to them. I now am on their mailing list, and I, I plan to read all their stuff. Take good care of yourselves. We'll see you next week. And as we always tell you, it may be old, but it's still true. All power to the people. Every highway and more, much more.